so thus far in Zechariah, go ahead and open your uh, Bibles to, uh, to chapter 2, by the way. Thus far in Zechariah, uh, Zechariah has come with a message from God to return to me, and I will return to you, God says. So there have been two visions so far, both of which concern the nations uh, that are around um, Judah that have oppressed uh, their nation uh, because God has permitted them to. God is, has punished the nation of Judah for, for their sin and for their idolatry. So uh, last week we heard about two visions that God gave to Zechariah. Uh, this, this opening part of the book is full of visions. So why visions? I thought about this this past week as I was getting ready. It's because the people need to see things from God's perspective. They need to see things from God's vantage point. They need to see the spiritual reality that's going on behind the scenes so that they will not become discouraged and give up hope because God is able to see things not only in terms of of a bird's eye view, but also in terms of what is going to happen. So God is speaking to the people about what is going to happen in the time to come. So it's easy for us to become discouraged when we feel like God does not see us and that he is not with us and that maybe he is not helping us the way that we feel like he should. We can feel alone and we can feel invisible at times. And in that invisibility, we can even begin to feel abandoned and discouraged. In our discouragement, we can begin to drift from God and to seek comfort elsewhere in places that God does not intend for us to. So the situation is that the people of Judah have returned to Jerusalem and they've been given the enormous task of rebuilding Jerusalem and the temple. So I don't know if you can imagine this in your, in your mind's eye, this kind of post-apocalyptic vision of this, of this city that has been destroyed. The temple has been burned with fire. The walls all around Jerusalem have been pulled down. So the city has become uh, basically a place where no one lives. It's completely abandoned. So you can imagine after 70 years what a wreck Jerusalem has become. So it's an overwhelming task of rebuilding a ruined city. So much time and effort is required. And the people of Israel, uh, the people of Judah have got to be thinking, where is God in all of this? They want to hear from him and they long for him to be present with them. So let me bring this home to you. I was trying to think of an illustration that would, that would help us in our, in our modern era to understand a little bit of what they are going through. So imagine that your family has had to move out of your house in, in a hurry, right? You had to put all of your stuff into storage. Who's done this before? Put, rent a storage unit and put a bunch of stuff in there. Maybe you didn't use as much care or as thought in putting things in there. You're just kind of like shoving things in as fast as you can because you want to be done with it, right? So you can imagine this storage unit that's a double wide storage unit. It's got all your stuff in there. It's packed to the gills and it's kind of falling out uh, when, when you open the storage unit doors. And for, for whatever reason in this, in this scenario that I'm imagining, you're the only one. You're the only one who has time and energy and effort to unpack the storage unit. You've got to do it all by yourself. So some of you who are, you know, really organized people are like, that sounds like a good day for me. I could totally do that. People like me are looking at that storage unit and going, I want to burn the entire storage unit down <laughs> and, and forget about it. And I'm going to go to Taco Bell and order one of everything on the menu because that's what I do. I just stress eat my way through that situation, right? Some of you are with me in that. So alone and overwhelmed by the situation that is before us. But God doesn't want his people to feel alone. 
He doesn't want them to feel invisible. He doesn't want them to feel abandoned by him. God is faithful to us and doesn't want us to drift away from him. So what does he do? He speaks to us. He wants us to remember his promise to dwell with his people. So today's promise, each, each of these visions kind of comes with a promise from God. Today's promise is that God will once again make his dwelling place with his people. He is with us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. The fact that you come and you speak to us when we feel alone and overwhelmed. Lord, it reminds us that you are present, that you are powerful, that you are there to help us. And God, that you have, uh, that you have made us for such a time as this. Lord, some of us are feeling that this morning. We need your word to speak to us and encourage us. Help us to see the gospel this morning. Help us to see the face of Christ in this scripture so that we would uh, be able to walk with you faithfully and to be encouraged by you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so our passage is divided into a vision and an oracle. I know you guys love that word oracle, right? It just sounds biblical, saying oracle, right? But an oracle is simply a declaration from God. So I'm going to enjoy saying it because I only get to preach every so often, and, and I'm going to enjoy saying oracle today. So our passage is divided into a vision and an oracle. Let's look at the vision first in verses 1 through 5. Let's look at this vision of the city without walls. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, Run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls, because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst." So in verses 1 and 2, God is showing Zechariah things from his perspective. Now, there's this picture of this man with a measuring line. When did we last see a measuring line? It's back in chapter 1. Brent preached about it last week. Look at verse 16 with me. It says, Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. So a measuring line is there to do some surveying work to see how, what the dimensions are of Jerusalem. And, it, and it's in the context of the reconstruction of Jerusalem to bring it back uh, to where it used to be. So Zechariah talks to the man in the vision. You know, Zechariah was asking questions last week. He's asking questions of the guy in the vision this week. So if Zechariah were over at your house watching a movie, he'd be talking to the screen, right? That's kind of the kind of guy Zechariah is. Like, don't, don't go there. Uh, don't marry that guy. That would be Zechariah watching the movie with you. But God, uh, excuse me, Zechariah is talking to the man in the vision. The man in the vision is ready to survey Jerusalem. He has heard that God is going to restore it, and so he's surveying it in, in hopes of being able to be a part of rebuilding it the way that it was. But God wants something greater than what the young man has in mind. So he, said, so he send, sends a message uh, with this angel. This second angel comes forward and has a message for the young man. He says, run and say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as vill villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. So three things are being prophesied here in this passage. The first of which is that Jerusalem will be abundantly 
inhabited. Right now, there's a, there's a small group of people that are kind of living around in Jerusalem, but nobody really wants to live in it. It's kind of, it's kind of a dump. So uh, this is the situation that, uh, that God prophesied about uh, through the prophet Jeremiah. Look at Jeremiah 9-11 on the screen with me. It says, I will make Jerusalem a heap of ruins, a layer of jackals, and I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitant. That's exactly what uh, Jerusalem looks like, right? It's a, it's a home for nobody but the jackal family uh, living out there in, in the middle of that, of that huge heap of stone and mess. So God says to his people, I'm not only going to uh, repopulate Jerusalem, it's going to be so big it's going to be like villages without walls. We know something about this kind of population in the Atlanta area, right? Uh, because it used to be um, that, that Marietta was like the, the suburb of Atlanta. And then it became Ackworth and Kennesaw. And you had a lot of population headed out this way. And now, uh, and then Cartersville used to be a podunk town. Now everybody's moving out to Cartersville. Everybody is, is buying up land around there. So pretty soon it's going to be white. And then Adairsville. It just keeps on going and going and going. Our city just keeps, continues to expand and expand. That's what God says Jerusalem is going to be like. There's no point in measuring it because it's going to continue to expand. It's going to be more populated than it was before. The second thing that is prophesied is Jerusalem is going to be protected by God. And there's a really cool picture that God uh, uses here. He says, I will be like a wall of fire around you. That's, a, that's an awesome uh, image. Now, it's not the first time that God has spoken of fire being a kind of protection um, in Scripture. You remember that in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve had to leave the garden, what was put there to keep them from getting back in? There were two cherubim and a flaming sword, right? Saying, you cannot come back into the Garden of Eden. You'll also remember in our study of Exodus this past year, how there was a pillar of fire that was leading the people from place to place. And when the Egyptians drew close to the people of Israel, that pillar of fire stood in between the people of Israel and the Egyptians. So, this wall of fire, God says, is going to protect them. Now, a wall of fire would be insurmountable, right? There's no siege works that you can put up against um, a wall of fire. It's going to burn up. It's not like you can try to climb it because it's fire, right? So there's no way for people to get through. God's saying, I'm going to protect you like a wall of fire. The third thing that is prophesied is that Jerusalem is going to be filled with God's glory. Now, this is particularly cool because God's glory was removed from Jerusalem in, in the book of Ezekiel. In, the, in uh, the book of Ezekiel in chapters 10 and 11, there's this picture, it's one of the saddest chapters in the Old Testament, of God's glory lifting up out of the temple and being removed from the city. It's so sad because it's a picture of God's presence leaving his people. He's saying, you continue to disobey me and you continue to worship idols and you won't stop. And so I'm going to have to remove my presence from you. So God is saying, I'm going to return. I'm going to, my glory is going to be within Jerusalem again. Now we need to talk a little bit about what it means, this, this idea of the glory of God. There's at least two ways that the, the, the phrase the glory of God is used in Scripture. The first is kind of the manifest radiance of God's person. And we saw this uh, as we were studying the book of Exodus. 
uh, when the glory of God came down on the mountaintop, when Moses was going up to receive the Ten Commandments, the glory of God and his presence were so strong that people did not want to come near the mountain and touch it because his presence was so radiant and so powerful. Not only that, but in Exodus chapter 40, when they dedicated the tabernacle, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle so much that even Moses could not stay inside of the tabernacle. Later on, it filled the temple in the same way. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 talks about how the priests were not able to minister in the temple because the glory of the Lord had so filled that location. So God shows his manifest presence, the radiance of his person. We also saw it in uh, Luke chapter 2. We were reading the, the Christmas narrative uh, this past year. Luke chapter 2, when, this, when the shepherds are visited by the angels to tell them about Jesus' birth, what happens? The glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. So the glory of the Lord is the manifest radiance of his person, and it's so strong, it's so powerful, that if God were to manifest his presence in this room, in our sinful flesh, we would just we would want to get out of here because it's so holy. It's so, something that is so other than what we are. God is some, some, something that is so different than we are. His glory would make us want to leave. The second way in which we see this idea of the glory of the Lord is an attribute of his gloriousness. So this is something more like the honor of the Lord. Let's look at Isaiah 43, verse 7. It's talking about humanity. It says, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So you and I were created for the honor and glory of God. Just like sometimes we dedicate a building and we put someone's name on it, or you might uh, make a painting or an ice sculpture or whatever it is uh, for a person. Um, you were made for the glory of God. And of course, we know that in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have fallen short of our purpose to bring honor to his name. We have instead chosen our own way. We have run away from him, and we have brought him dishonor instead. So those two things, the, the manifest radiance of his person and the attribute of his gloriousness, that's what is meant in the Old Testament by the glory of the Lord or the glory of God. So let me sum up what's, what's happening in the, the vision here. So we've got this picture of this, this man, and in his human zeal, this young man wants to measure out um, what God will do for his people, right? This, this, uh, the measurement of Jerusalem. And the angels send a message to say, look, you're wasting your time trying to measure what God's going to do for his people in the, the, in the, uh, the, the square footage of Jerusalem. God wants to do far more than what you can perceive with your eyes. And presently, what he wants the people to do is to rebuild Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. Uh, not the wall at this time. That's going to be Nehemiah's job later on in the book. But the worship of God's people required a temple. They were supposed to give uh, sacrifices to God. Uh, it was the way that they were made right with God and were able to deal with their sin. So a rebuilt Jerusalem and a rebuilt temple then would be evidence of God's glorious presence and a restoration of the relationship between God and his people. We'll talk more about that in weeks to come. But God says, I'm going to do something miraculous. He says, I'm going to not only restore the population and make it a great city again, I'm also going to give you supernatural protection as you rebuild the city. And you're going to see the manifestation 
of my glory in the lives of your people. So he's saying to his people, don't be discouraged. I see you right where you're at. You've not been deserted forever. Return to me as you rebuild, and I will return to you. All right, so let's look at the oracle here in verses 6 through 13. Love that word. All right, so there there are two cities that are going to be talked about in this part of the passage, and they're representative of two different things. There's the city of Babylon, and that's going to represent the city of man, and there's Jerusalem, which is going to represent the city of God. Now, the city of man is kind of this idea of the the height of worldly culture and power. It's people showing how great they are, all right? So this would be like the Super Bowl is all about the the amazing achievements of these two teams that are at the top of their game. Or it would be like uh, the cities of Hollywood or New York kind of showing the best of what we can accomplish uh, in some ways with our culture. So it looks great on the outside, but it's going to be weighed and tried, and it's going to be judged. In contrast, the city of God is the city whose foundation and builder is God. And right now, Jerusalem doesn't look like so much, but what God is building in Jerusalem is there to honor him. And it has an eternal significance because it's something that God is doing. So let's first look at the city of man in verses 6 through 9. Up, up. Flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who serve them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. So, the people of Judah have been taken captive into the, the, uh, the, the nation of Babylon, the city of Babylon. And some of them have built comfortable homes for themselves in exile. So they don't really want to return to Jerusalem because it's a dump. But God is saying, look, the, the ship, Babylon's ship is sinking. Its stock is dropping. There's, there's going to be nations that are coming against Babylon to destroy it. So even though I scattered you like a windstorm, sometimes we have uh, strong windstorms that come around uh, this area, and sometimes your patio furniture gets flipped away, and, and, uh, and this way and that, things are all over your yard. That's what's happened to the people of Judah. They've been scattered all over the place, and yet God is saying, I'm going to bring you back to me. Not only that, but just like uh, in the previous two visions, God is saying, I am going to judge those who... Uh, have come against Judah because Judah is precious to me. Judah is the apple of my eye. These are my people. Even though they have they've disobeyed me, I'm going to be faithful to them. So God's going to respond to what Babylon has done with vindictive force. God is, is going to raise his hand over Babylon. Verse, verse 9, it says, I'm going to shake my hand over them. So you can get this picture of God like a general because he's the Lord of hosts. He's the He's the, uh, the God of, of all of the angel armies that follow him. And he's shaking his hand. And he's directing the angels uh, against the city of Babylon. So it's going to come under judgment. So just as the, uh, the first vision with the horses prophesied, the city of man right now looks like it, it is at peace. Looks like it's doing well, but it's about to be judged. And so what does God say to his people? He says, I want you to escape 
Babylon. I want you to flee. Even though it looks like everything's peaceful right now, it's not going to be in the future. Then he turns and he speaks about the city of God. Let's look at verses 10 through 13. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. So, you can imagine what this would do to this weary and discouraged people that's looking at this, at this dump of a city, this trash heap of a city that's been overtaken by wild animals. And God is saying to them, I want you to sing and I want you to rejoice because of what I'm about to do. The rebuilding of the temple and the rebuilding of Jerusalem are going to point you to the reality that God's glory is going to be in your midst again. So verse 11 is talk, it uses this, this phrase, in that day, in that day, um, uh, many nations will join themselves to the Lord. This is a phrase that indicates something that's going to happen in the future. Sometimes uh, prophetic literature uses the phrase, the day of the Lord. So God's talking about something that is going to happen in the future. God predicts that the nations themselves, the nations that have been, that have been uh, pushing Judah around, and enslaving them are actually going to come to Jerusalem. They're going to join themselves to Judah in worshiping the one true and living God. They are also going to leave the city of man and be joined to the city of God. And then God says he's going to affirm his choice of Judah and Jerusalem, even though they have been unfaithful to him. So you can imagine what an encouragement this would be to a people who just feels alone, who feels discouraged in the situation that they're in. There's this tension between Babylon and Jerusalem in this passage. There's this difference between the daughter of Babylon and the daughter of Zion. God is promising to dwell with his people, and as a result, he's commanding them to leave the city of man and be joined to the city of God again. All right, so let's, let's, let's apply this. Let's, let's bring it out of, out of uh, this, this, uh, this ancient Near Eastern context into, into our situation, because God's word is always applicable. And I want us to see that there are pictures of the gospel right here in this passage. What, and then what God has done through the gospel always demands a response. So we're going to see uh, two things. The gospel, first of all, the gospel calls us to escape and to flee the city of man. And then second of all, the gospel calls us to sing and rejoice in the city of God. So let's first look at um, how God calls us to escape and to flee from the city of man. Now in our text this morning, God called his people home from their place of captivity. They were sent to Babylon as a punishment and you know that whatever you really want, whatever it really is your heart's desire, God will give you, God will give you over to that desire to show you what your heart looks like. So God said to his people, look, you want the gods of this world? You want to worship like they do? I'm going to give you a whole nation full of people who worship other gods. You want, you want sin? You want the pleasures of sin? I'm going to give you over to a whole nation full of sinners. You're going to see what it looks like when people do nothing but sin all the time. There, you don't have to worry about all this temple worship and all that stuff. You're just going to see what it looks like when people give themselves over completely to what it is that your heart desires. 
So even though they were brought there against their will, they kind of become comfortable in Babylon. They become Babylonians in some sense. They build nice homes for themselves. And since it's a a peaceful place during that time, they don't really want to leave. So the people of Judah were in a literal Babylon. But for us today, this has a spiritual meaning instead. Now, throughout Scripture, Babylon is this picture of the world. Now, in Scripture, the phrase the world is used a number of different ways. The first of which, of course, is talking about uh, this physical plane. The fact that God made the world and everything that is in it. The second way Scripture talks about the world is is the people in the world. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God gave his, his son for people who live in the world, not for the planet. The third way in which we see the world used is this idea of a satanic, sin-fueled world system that is in constant opposition to the kingdom of God. So this, 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 uh, this uh, idea of the world is that the world is infected by sin and is inspired by Satan. And yet it has this magnetic appeal to us because it continues to offer us some of the things that we used to enjoy when we were in the world, when we were, when we were still living in sin. So in Matthew chapter 4, you might remember the story of Jesus being tempted by Satan. One of the things that he was tempted with was all of the kingdoms of this world. It's the same temptation that Judah feels in this passage, that, it, that the people of Judah would want to stay where it's comfortable. They want to stay in the things of this world. So you could say in some ways that, that, that Jesus was tempted with Babylon. He was tempted with the best that the world had to offer, all of the comfort all of the approval, all of the power that people want in this life was being offered to Jesus. And yet Jesus rejected it because Babylon always offers these things apart from God. It offers us comfort apart from God. It offers us the approval of people apart from God. So when Jesus rejected it, he did so as our representative. He did so on our behalf Because he was going to battle for us. He was making a way for us to escape the city of man. But look at what the Apostle Paul tells us about our position in the world before we were saved. This is Ephesians chapter 2. It's a great description. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So we were completely under the sway of worldly ways of thinking. The Bible tells us that we were actually following Satan. It's like a, the world is like a big Mardi Gras parade with Satan as the grand marshal. And he's just passing out treats. He's passing out the things that would satisfy us in this life. And, and the Bible tells us we were all there. We were all participating in that parade. We were all being led around by the nose by Satan. And to us, it all looked right. Look at the next couple of verses. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So to us, all of it felt right. 
all of it felt good. What, and then what God called good, we called evil. We said, that's a nuisance. That's a waste of time. What God called evil, we would justify by, by saying, it just feels right to me. It's, 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 it's what feels right, even morally right in our minds. We could justify it. We could say, this is actually uh, the right thing to do. And yet God interrupts the parade. Look at Ephesians 2, 4 and 5 with me. It says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loves us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So this is the message of the gospel, that, that Jesus interrupts it. He comes. He changes our relationship with the world. He makes us alive with him. Jesus gives us a new heart by which we want to please him. But sometimes we still have worldly attitudes about the things around us. It's like we want to dwell with God in his city, but we kind of want to maintain a vacation home in the city of man. Now, my family and I moved up here from Florida a couple years ago, and there was literally uh, people who, uh, we, we called them snowbirds, right? There were people who, who lived in Florida during part of the year, during the nasty weather uh, uh, time of year. They would come down to Florida, and they would enjoy the sunshine. They'd sit out on the beach, even though we're, all of us Floridians were like, it's cold, Why, you're crazy to be out there, right? But, but these people would come, and they would live down here, and they would enjoy the sunshine, and then the rest of the year, they would go back and enjoy their homes in the north. So they had two houses. This is what we are like at times. We want to have one foot in the world, and we want to have one foot in God's kingdom. Now you may look at your life and kind of go, you know what? I don't think that's as true. I don't think that's true for me. That I can, I've really put a lot of worldly things behind me. There's a lot of things that I used to do that I don't do anymore. And yet watch what happens when you don't get what you want. Right? Maybe you want um, respect from your family. Right? You want your family to appreciate you and to respect you. And yet what happens when you don't get that from your family. You become angry, sinfully angry, and you blow up, or you sulk and you withdraw from them, right? You go to war with the people that God gave to you. Or let's say that you really have your heart set on something uh, for your house. And this could be a good thing, and, but it's probably something that you saw uh, one of your friends having on social media. And so it's something that you desire for yourself. You're like, I, I want that thing. And I work just as hard as that guy, and yet you don't get it. And you begin to sulk, and you grumble in your heart that you don't have what that other person has. These are worldly attitudes. These are worldly attachments to things. That's the way that the world operates. As a matter of fact, all of the ads on TV play to that fact, right? They're all trying to sell you a vision of a perfect world without God, that you don't need God in order to get. So these could be things that, things that God calls good, respect in your home, that's a good thing. But if we want it badly enough to sin against others in order to get it, we have a worldly attachment in our heart to that thing. We're trying to have one foot in the world and one foot in God's kingdom. But we can't expect God to play along with that. James 4.4 tells us that friendship with the world is enmity towards God. It's hatred towards God. You can't love the world and love God at the same time. God is saying, you've got to choose. Now, sometimes we feel alone and invisible or abandoned because it's us that's walked away from God. 
we have isolated ourselves from him because we've walked towards the city of man again. The good news is that the blood of the covenant that Jesus made with us and God is the strongest that there is. So he doesn't make walking away from him an option. He comes to us and he speaks to us. He reminds us that cozying up with the world equals spiritual adultery. And he says the same thing to us that he said to the people of Judah. He says, escape and flee. So that's how the gospel speaks to us about our relationship with the city of man. It says to escape and flee. Let's look what it says to us about um, the city of God. It calls us to sing and rejoice in the city of God. So this passage today reminds us of what Jesus did when he came for us in his incarnation. Because God did multiply the people in Jerusalem. And he did protect them while they rebuilt the temple. And he did fill the hearts of his people with his glorious presence. But just like God had something bigger in mind than the young man who was running to make those measurements, there was an even greater promise of God's presence that was to come. Look at John 1.14 with me. It says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus became flesh. He took on flesh. He left his heavenly home in order to make his home with us, in order to uh, save us from our sin. So if you feel alone this morning and discouraged, I want you to remember that Jesus came for you. He made his dwelling among us and he died to make a way for us. Remember what he said about himself in John 14, 6. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's saying, I made a way for you out of the city of man, out of worldliness, and into the city of God. So we need to talk a little bit about what it means to sing and to rejoice. Now, this, For some of you, this is going to be your favorite part of this whole sermon because you are not big singers, right? We see you guys. You know, you come in, uh, you come in on the late side of, of worship time. Maybe you came in on the last song. Uh, and sometimes you just kind of sit there for that last few minutes with, with your mouth closed, and you're kind of quietly ticking away the moments until the singing stops, because singing is just not your thing. I want to challenge you this morning. We are gathered here together to glorify God. It's not for our own pleasure. Worship is about Him. It's not just about how we feel, either how we feel in our hearts or how we feel about the sound of our voice. God has set our hearts free in the gospel. And as a matter of fact, he even put us, all of us, into a free country in which we can actually raise our voices without any fear of retribution for someone. That's an amazing gift to us. There are other places and other parts of the world where the church has to gather in secret, in underground churches. And for them, singing is them whispering the words to a song. Church, we get to raise our voices to God Every Sunday, we should enjoy that. We should appreciate that in, in this free country in which he's placed us. Our understanding of who God is and what he has done should cause our affections to be set on him. It should cause our hearts to be set on him in such a way that our voice follows. And if there's a disconnect there, then that's something that we need to bring before God and let him work on our hearts uh, in. It is an appropriate response to sing and rejoice to God even if we can't carry a tune. Remember what Luke 6.45 said. It says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
So if there's nothing coming out of your mouth, you have to wonder what's going on in your heart. All right, so let me give you three reasons from the passage. And this is for everybody. This is not just for our, our, our non-singing uh, folks. This is for everybody. Uh, three reasons for us to rejoice and sing in what God has done for us. From the passage, all right? Because I could go on all day if I were just talking about reasons to sing about God. But let's look at the ones from the passage. Number one, Jesus is filling his city. Jesus is filling his city. That's something to sing about. Many of you work around a lot of non-Christians, and it can make you feel lonely. It can make you feel like you're the only Christian on the planet. Is there anyone at all around me who loves Jesus? But God wants you to know you are far from alone. He is saving people, and he is bringing them to himself all of the time. And, and to encourage us, he gives us this great vision in the book of Revelation. Look at Revelation 7, 9, and 10. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It's a great passage. It's so encouraging because it reminds us that, there is, there, that God is saving people around us all of the time. He is populating the city of God with every moment that passes. You remember at the beginning of the year, Brent preached that, preached that great passage from Matthew 16. It was talking about how Jesus builds his church. And it said that the gates of Hades will not prevail against us. So that means is, as we share the gospel together as a church, that there are going to be people who will be saved. We should believe that God will save people as we share the gospel. Remember what happened in the book of Acts as Paul began to share the gospel with people? Some people completely rejected everything that he had to say. What would Paul do? He would go on to the next town or he would go on to the next group of people and he would share the gospel with them because he believed that God is in the business of saving people. According to this, this vision in Revelation and according to, uh, and, and as we apply Zechariah chapter 2, we should see that God is populating his city. Why wouldn't we want to be a part of that? Now, this is interesting because it's the one part of Zechariah's prophecy that I can see that was not fulfilled in the time in which the hearers were listening. Remember, it was that, it was that phrase, in that day. It was talking about a future day that would come to pass. The nations did not stream into Jerusalem. The Babylonians did not all become uh, a part of, of, the, part, a part of the, the nation of Judah. But now they are. People are streaming in from every tribe and every tongue and every nation across this world because Jesus is calling them. Jesus is bringing them to himself. The church exists because it's a fulfillment of the prophecy to Judah made in Zechariah chapter 2. And the good news is, according to Revelation 7, there is more to come. So we can sing and we can rejoice in the fact that Jesus is building his church He's filling the city of God with ransomed captives like you and like me. The second thing, the second reason I want you to give you to sing is it because Jesus is protecting his city. Now, just as God said that there would be a wall of fire around his people, Jesus is protecting those who have entered the city of God. Now, some of you may be looking at your past week right now in your minds and going, you know what? 
I really don't feel so protected. Uh, maybe God took his hand off the wheel for a second because I feel like my life is in the ditch. Like, I feel like God has is, 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 is taken his hand off of me. Look at the things that are happening in my life. There's all of this suffering. There's all of this difficulty in my life. Does God not see me? Now, to be sure, God is, is protecting you all of the time. There are, there are ways in which he's protecting you and keeping you uh, from things all the time that you can't see. And whether it's protecting you from uh, sin that you couldn't resist or whether it's protecting you from physical harm. God is absolutely doing those things all of the time. And yet the Bible says that God does not promise us a life here on earth that is without trials. James chapter 1 verse 2 says uh, to, to, for us to take joy because in this life, we will have trials of many kinds. It's going to happen. First Peter 1.6 says, In this you rejoice, though for now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So God is saying, look, trials are a part of this life. And what do trials do for us? They cause us to cry out to God. They cause us to put our hands in His because when everything is falling apart around us, His hand is the one thing that is not falling apart. We can put our hand in his and he will lead us through and he strengthens our faith through those trials. But the good news is that God does protect us in ways, again, that we don't see and we don't think about all the time, but we need to. God promises to protect those things which we cannot lose. I've been giving you numbers all the time, one, two, and three. And my points, I'm going to give you A, B, and C here. Okay, we'll switch things up. So letter A things that God gives us and protects that we cannot lose is treasures in heaven. Matthew 6, 19 says, Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. God gives us an opportunity here on earth each day to amass for ourselves treasures in heaven. He says that he is going to reward those things that we do in his honor for his glory. God is going to give us treasures. So he says, lay up for yourselves um, treasures in heaven. Your house is going to fall apart someday. Your car is going to fall apart someday. Your new grill is going to fall apart someday. All of those things are going to fall apart. And yet God is giving you treasures that can't be corrupted by moth or rust. They can't fall apart. B, second thing that God promises to protect is an inheritance. 1 Peter 1.4 says that God will give us an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. In other words, when you are saved, when you become a part of God's family, he gives to you an inheritance, just like I will give to my kids whatever is left um, after my life is through. That inheritance is, is given to us and how does Peter describe it? He says that it's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. God is, is giving you an inheritance just because you are a part of his family. A third thing, C, Colossians 3.3 3 says, Our life is hidden with Christ in God. Your relationship with God cannot be taken away in this life. If you are in Christ that you will never be parted from Jesus. Not in this life, not in the life to come. You will always be with him. Think about what Romans 8 says. We will not be separated from the love of Christ by anything. Colossians 3.3 3 says to us that our life is hidden 
with Christ in God. John 10, 28 tells us that no one will snatch us from the Father's hand. There will be no separation from us to God, either in this life or in the life to come. That God is protecting that relationship on a minute-by-minute basis. You are being protected. Your relationship with God is being protected forever in Christ. Amen? This is why Paul and Silas could sing in that Philippian jail. You remember that story from the book of Acts. They were imprisoned for the sake of the gospel. And yet, in that dark place, they began to raise their voices and sing hymns to God. They were lifting their voices and reminding themselves and preaching to others as they did so that God is real, that he has saved us, that he's made us his own. Now, isn't it interesting that we spend millions of dollars every year trying to ensure ourselves against loss? And there's nothing wrong with, with insurance here at all. It's, it's, a good, it's a good investment. But we spend millions of dollars to protect things that we absolutely can lose. And yet God gives us as a free gift these things that we cannot possibly lose, these things that are of greater value than anything that we can amass in this life. So we can sing praise to God about, about the fact that he protects us, that he protects his city. Remember the old hymn says, a wall of fire about me, I have nothing now to fear. These are things that we cannot lose in Christ. All right, the third thing, third thing that we should raise our voices and sing and rejoice about is that Jesus is the glory of his city. In the Old Testament, we saw that God's glory filled the temple. In the New Testament, the glory of Christ fills his people. Look at 2 Corinthians 3.18 with me. It says, And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So as we are walking with Jesus and as we are looking at who he is through his word as he reveals himself to us day by day, we are being transformed from one glory to the next. That means that, um, that we are like a huge restoration project. The Holy Spirit is coming in and there's something rough on this edge of us. The Holy Spirit is shaving that off. He's causing it to be smooth. He's causing it to reflect the glory of God. There's, there's part of us over here that's crusty and smudgy. The Holy Spirit is polishing up, up that part of our life. So the gospel continues to transform us because the Holy Spirit is applying the message of the gospel to us. Just as we begin to reflect Jesus in one facet of our lives, he moves on to another. He continues to refine us, moving us from glory to glory. And all of this is because Jesus has come to dwell with us. He has come to abide with us in our hearts by faith. So we sing and we rejoice because Jesus is taking us from glory to glory. Jesus is the glory of us, his city. Let me go down to verse 13 to finish up. I didn't really give verse 13 a very good treatment earlier. It says, Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Now we know in this context, God absolutely roused himself from his holy dwelling. He did judge the city of man. He judged Babylon for, for touching the apple of his eye. And we know that Jesus has roused himself from his holy dwelling. He came from heaven, where he enjoyed all of the comfort and adoration that he deserved. And he came to us. He came to us in, in this cesspool of sin that we live in here. He took on flesh and he accomplished our salvation. 
And so what does scripture tell us to do? It says to be silent all flesh before the Lord, for he has roused himself. We should meditate not only on what God has done, but we should meditate on his return. This is part of what we do during communion. We think about what Jesus has done for us on the cross, and we look forward to the time in which Jesus is going to return. Look at Revelation 21, 3 with me. We can see the consummation of this. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be, excuse me, God himself will be with them as their God. So God is saying, it's not enough just that I have come to dwell with you in the person of Jesus. I'm actually going to bring heaven down to you in the new earth that is to come. And, and, and you are going to be uh, my city. I'm going to dwell in you just as I promised the people of Judah that I would dwell in them and be a wall of fire of protection around them. So church, this morning I want you to know we are not alone. Our God is coming to dwell with us again. And so for now... While we await God's coming in the, person of this, in the person of Christ that second time, for now we flee and escape the city of man, and we rejoice and sing in the city of God. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we rejoice in the things that you have accomplished for us. Lord, your work on the cross was perfect. Lord, it cleansed us from all sin. And Holy Spirit, we thank you that you came and that you indwell each one of us. Lord, that you are continuing to refine us, that you're making us new, that you call us moment by moment to leave the city of man and to enter the city of God. Lord, we thank you for the many blessings that we enjoy, the fact that we get to sing and rejoice, not only here on a Sunday morning, but throughout our week, Lord. We get to rejoice, we get to sing your praises, we get to talk to you, talk to to other people about you. Lord, fill us with that glory. Remind us of what you have done. It is so easy for us to feel alone and discouraged and abandoned. Help us to see your word, your gospel applied to us this morning. As we go, encourage us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.